Before I forget, I just don't, uh, here in a, a week, this coming Thursday, a week from that, actually on uh, Halloween night or whatever, we're having another harvest party um, where we just hope what we want to accomplish with that is to invite, so adults hear this, it's not just for kids. Okay, did everybody hear that? Raise your hand. It's for kids and adults. We're, our idea and our focus on that is for everyone to be involved so our kids get to experience the time with the adults and, and uh, the, the adults get to spend time with the kids and we can do some things together and really uh, so that we can make fun of everybody and no, so that we can, we can put, um, so we can just have a lot of fun. That's what I meant to say, so we can have a lot of fun. And uh, we want to do some things as a congregation that will do that and uh, even if you have to come and observe or um, whatever, uh, we hope that you will enjoy that time together. And there will be a meal that starts at 6 o'clock on the 31st. There will be a meal that will take place. Um, I don't know what the meal is yet. But we will we'll have something good, I'm, sh I'm sure. Um, and then uh, we'll have some games and we'll have just a lot of fun time together. And um, we hope that you'll put that on your calendar and... Bring your kids or grandkids or bring, uh, just, just uh, let's uh, enjoy that event together. Um, so anyway, uh, maybe you heard the story, and just kind of segueing into some other things here. Uh, maybe you heard the story about the little girl, and she, she went up to her mother, and she asked her, she says, Mommy, how did the human race start? How did, it, how did it come about? And her mom says to her, you know, she says, well, honey, um, God made Adam and Eve, and and they had children, and so all of mankind was made. And the little girl, you know, she was pretty satisfied with that answer for a little while. And then a few days later, she, I don't know, she just wanted to get clarification on that or what. But she, she, she goes up to her dad and, and asks him the same question. She says, Dad, you know, wh how, did, how did the human race come about? And the father answers, well, you know, many, many, many years ago, there were monkeys, and we developed from them. Well, that's... You know, you can imagine how that confused that little girl. So she goes back to her mother and she says, she asks her mom, she says, Mom, how is it possible that, that you told me that the human race was created by God and Papa says that we developed from monkeys? How does that happen? And the mother answers, well, dear, this is really, really very simple. I told you about the origin of my side of the family and your father told you about his side. <laughs> Well, the, the, what we've been doing is we've been in this series entitled, um, if you look at, is, is, is called Defending the Faith. And in the last couple of weeks, we've, uh, we've been really looking at some of the arguments for the existence of God. Um, so we looked at, first of all, we looked at the cosmological argument, um, which is an argument from beginnings. It's an it's an argument of, really, it's an argument of cause and effect. There has to be an adequate cause to every effect. And it really deals with, which is a scientific thing, by the way, uh, cause and effect, you know. Um, and we talked about that a little bit. Uh, um, if, if you see something uh, that's supposed to be up here on this podium and you knock it off, you know, something had to cause that to fall off, whether it be air movement or my arm or whatever. There's, there's a cause and effect in every good... Uh, effect has to have every effect has to have some cause somewhere, and that's a scientific argument. It, but it, but 
this is what this deals with. It deals with the question, this cosmological argument. It deals with this question of, of why is there something? Something. Something. Why is there something? Uh, namely, the cosmos or, why, or, or the universe. Why is there something rather than nothing? And, and where did that come from? Where did it, where did it all uh, stem from? Um, because it's not scientifically reasonable to believe that matter and energy are eternal. In other words, it's, it's, it, uh, that they, have, uh, they had to have a beginning. In fact, that's a scientific thing as well. The, most scientists, the majority of scientists as well as, of course, the creationists would agree that, that, uh, that the earth is not eternal. We've, 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 uh, we've solved that dilemma by coming up with the first and second laws of thermodynamics. And, um, but it's not logical, therefore, to conclude that something with a beginning, that something that, that came into existence somehow created itself. It's not logical to think that. But that's the cosmological argument, that, that, that someone or something had to have been the cause of this great universe of ours. And we believe that something, or rather that someone, we believe that to be God. And then last week we talked about the teleological argument, and, and that's a big word, and I know it's, it's, it's sometimes hard to say. It's kind of a tongue twister. But the teleological argument really... The word teleos, teleos, it really has to do with purpose. It has to do with design. And that's simply what it is. It's an argument from design. And it just basically, it simply states that the, the design and the beauty and the, and the complexity of our universe and the complexity of, 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 uh, the, of the animals and the plant life and the human life and all those things, it's just simply too great to be handed over by chance. I, we were, um, I'm, I'm teaching some of this in, in class uh, to some of the students, and we talked about, did I talk to you about the, the woodpecker and how incredible the woodpecker is? They, they came up with this thing called, it, it, these are big words and stuff like that, but it's called irreducible complexity. Okay? Now that's hard to say, but basically what it means is, is that you can't take away different parts. If you reduce the parts, whatever it is won't function. And one of the things that they used was a mousetrap. There's five parts to a mousetrap. But if you take away any one, of those fun any one of those components, if you reduce it down, it won't function at all. Well, then they looked at the woodpecker. And, and what an incredible, anybody know about the woodpecker, how incredible it is? It's just amazing. It's got this tongue. This is, the, this is one that just blows me away. Uh, there's a lot of things. It's got a hard skull. It's got this. It's got a long tongue. It's got it's got claws that'll make it so that it can it can be uh, be on the tree that it's in, in vertical, like rather than you know other birds can't do what the woodpecker can do. It its tail or not tail. It's 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 tail feathers actually serve as a way that they can. You ever seen a guy on the on a telephone pole? It can stick that baby in there, and it can, you know, lean back where it needs to be with its, you know, with its with its tail feathers. Its skull is very hardened, so that when it's wrapping like that, that it's not gonna, its brain isn't gonna blow up. Um, and and it's got the, oh, but but the tongue, it's it's one and a half times the, the uh, length of its body. Isn't that incredible? Its tongue is one and a half times the length of its body. 
And what it does is it goes in and around and up around its skull for storage. Now, this is just amazing. This is, that's how amazing. I never knew this stuff before. Okay? And so when it, when, it, when it pops a hole into the tree and it puts the tongue in there and drops it down, it also has some sticky stuff, substance, on the end of its tongue, and it licks the bug and it brings it back in. And then we have to ask ourselves the question, well, well how come that tongue doesn't then stick inside of its throat or in its tom- stomach or whatever when it brings that bug in or whatever? Well, it has a specific enzyme or different kind of chemical inside of its body that actually will release that bug and make it so that his tongue doesn't stick to the roof of his mouth. I mean, amazing. It's just, you know, how does that happen? And, and then the other thing is that when a woodpecker, you know, when it knocks on a tree, this is amazing to me. Now, it does this. I don't think any of us can move our heads that fast. You, you've seen a woodpecker and what it does. Okay, I already talked about the skull, but this woodpecker, when it's, when it's, when it's wrapping and everything else, it actually opens its eyes before it hits so it can see where it's, where it's pointing to, and then it closes its eyes and does that every time that it does that. They know that to be true. Science has, has proven this. We'll show you that that's exactly what happens. Now, if it goes into the tree and has its eyes open, its eyes would just pop right out of its head. It hits it with such a hard smack. That's what happens with, with, a, with a woodpecker. There's so many other incredible things that we could go on to. But what I'm saying, what I'm mentioning is, is that there is such a design, there is such a detail to that. And, and what the argument from design says is that how can that just evolve for, for, over periods of time? You, it, all has to, it all has to come into play all at once. God designed it all at once because it wouldn't function if, you know, you had a you had a feather this time and a head this time and the skull, if all that just sort of kind of grew over time and so on and so forth. So we look at that and, and so when you, we look at our universe and we looked at that a little bit last week and how our universe is so finely tuned. When we, again, when we look at plants, when we look at animals, when we look at humans and we recognize how complex they are, it just stands to reason that there was someone, that there was a designer who designed all of us all, all of these things, and once again, we believe that someone to be God. And what we've been saying so far is that everything around us in this universe really does point to God. And uh, one of the things that I want us to see today is that, that there are not only things around us in creation, that there's not only around, things around us in, in, you know, in, phys- in the physical universe that point to God, but there's also something inside of us that I think points to God as well. So in, in, in trying to present evidence to, to prove, uh, to disprove the existence of God, anti-theists or atheists um, have a very difficult time accounting for the universe's origin and for the intricate design of our, of our universe. But they also have great difficulty in accounting for, number one, you ever think about this? Human consciousness. Human consciousness. Um, our, in other words, our ability to think, our ability to reason. And, and, and number two, that, that would be that inborn sense of, of right and, and wrong that we, that we have. In other words, uh, you know, the moral law that we have within us. Everyone has that, this, this, this ability to sense that which is right from which is that which is wrong, and that's also known as the moral argument. 
And these are two things that most people would quickly admit that are unique to us as human beings. This, this moral, um, this morality or this, this sense of, of uh, morality that we, each of us have. And now, of course, we don't always act on, upon that, that uh, uh, on what we know to be true or to be right or wrong in the way that we should. But um, anyway, over the last couple of weeks, or actually three weeks, we've, I have said that atheism asks us to believe the unbelievable. And I'll show you a couple of those right up here. We've, we've, we've put this list up for the last couple times. But the first thing that we, we suggest is, is that nothing produces everything. Nothing, that, that's just unbelievable to believe that. We, we, it, it's just, un, um, it asks us, or atheism asks us to believe the unbelievable, that non-life produces life, that randomness produces fine-tuning, and that chaos produces information. Somehow we've been asked us to believe that. But it also asks us to believe this, and we didn't mention this the last couple of times, but, but we do today. Unconsciousness produces consciousness. This gets really philosophical and all that stuff, but non-reason, number six, produces reason. Um, you know, just like there must be an answer for all, uh, for the origin of all things with a beginning point, I think there must also be an answer to the question, why can I think? Why can I reason? Why, why do I think? Why am, why am I conscious of my own existence? Right? There's a, a Darwinist philosopher by the name of Michael Roos who once wrote this statement. Here's what he said. This is, not, this is a Darwinist philosopher, and he said, why should a bunch of atoms have thinking ability? You can see why there's a dilemma inside of his mind. Why should a bunch of atoms have, have thinking ability? Why should I, even as I write now, be able to reflect on what I am doing? And why should you, even as you read now, be able to ponder my points, agreeing or disagreeing, with pleasure or with pain? Deciding to refute me or deciding I am not worth, worth the effort, no one, certainly not the Darwinist, Darwinian as such, seems to have any answer to this. The point is that there is no scientific answer. I think he's right. I mean, at least that there's no scientific answer. There, there, is, there is one thing that none of us actually can doubt about ourselves. We, we may doubt it about some of the people around us, sitting next to us, but not ourselves, and that is that our ability to think. We have the ability to reason. We have the ability to think on, on abstract levels as well as concrete levels. We, we can grasp things like facts and figures and, and formulas. We can also grab concepts like, like justice and truth and, and goodness and, and evil. We are conscious beings who are capable of thoughts and emotions and desires and beliefs and, and free, will, free will choices. We are able to think about the fact that we're able to think about the fact that we're able to think, right? We have the ability to be introspective, you know. We, we, we think and we ask questions concerning the origins of life and the meaning of life. Now, I mean, how many dogs do you find sitting around developing or discussing the history of the canine philosophy? 
you know, offering proofs for the existence of God or themselves. You know, I bark, therefore I am, you know. Um, no, they are not tormented over the origins or, or over their origins or their purpose or their final destination after death. I mean, you just give them some food and some love and, and they're happy. You throw them a ball and they have one decision to make, whether or not to chase after that ball or whether or not to. And that's about it. But see, you and I are different. We have the ability to communicate in some co very complex ways. We have the ability to appreciate things like beauty. We have the ability to create and to make things. And we have the ability to discover things about this universe that are in, incredible. We have, we're, 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 we've been created differently. And so I think that the question is this. If the universe began with dead matter having no consciousness, how then do you get something totally different? Consciousness, living, thinking, feeling, believing creatures. How do you get all of that from materials that don't? If thoughts are nothing more than a function of a physical and chemical reactions put in place by a long process of evolution, then everything in us and everything about us is determined and we have no control over it. My thoughts then become nothing more than just a natural response to some sort of an electronic impulse that, that's going on in my brain. Now if that's true, then what happens if I come in here on a Sunday morning and I go all postal on you, I start yelling and screaming at everybody, what, what happens then? Well, here's the, here's, here's the thing. For starters, you don't have any right to be angry with me because I wouldn't be able to help it. You get what I'm saying? If I go crazy, start screaming at everybody, you don't have any right to tell me any different that I'm doing wrong because I'm just responding to what I, I just can't help it. I'm responding to some sort of electronic impulses that are going on in my brain. Um, I mean, my, my, that's what would be happening. And, and so you really couldn't hold me accountable for my actions. If all of my thoughts are just nothing more than just a, a natural response to the electric impulses in, of my brain, then that means that my belief or, or my unbelief is already determined. And so why try to convince me that God does or does not exist? Everything is just physical response process is playing out naturally. Well, the truth is there is no natural, scientific, physical, evolutionary explanation for our consciousness and ability to think and reason and believe. If everything began in the mind of God, we will not have trouble explaining, though I don't think our minds. Uh, C.S. Lewis once wrote, he said, if there is no intelligence behind the universe, then nobody designed my brain for the purpose of thinking. Thought, he says, is, a, is merely a byproduct of some atoms within my skull. Uh, and if this is so, how can I trust my own thinking to be true? And if I can't trust my own thinking, of course, I can't trust arguments leading to atheism, and therefore I have, to reason, have no reason to be an atheist or anything else. Unless I believe in God, I can't believe in thought. So I can never use thought to disbelieve God. A lot, of, a lot of stuff going around. Um, 
the late John Templeton said it this way. He said, would it not be strange if a universe without purpose accidentally created humans who are obsessed with purpose? That's a great quote. Um, I just, you know, it's the insanity of a lot of this stuff. I mean, it makes your head spin. And you, I can see that some of you guys are going, whoa, you know, same thing. I mean, the insanity. I, I watched this guy for about a half an hour this week talk about how what if, what if I'm really dreaming and that the reality is not real and that the things that I go and experience, he's just talking about all this. I mean, this is all philosophy stuff, and it makes your head just, just go numb when, you're, when, you, when you listen to, but they're trying to figure out and trying to experience about or trying to understand and to, and to somehow um, explain or provide an explanation or, or learn an explanation for what we're experiencing in this universe because if, if, if it all just happened and we're just all acting on stimuli, then maybe what, this is the conclusion, maybe what we're all experiencing is, is really just really a dream and, and all this isn't real. You're not sitting there today. Doesn't that just make you want to just go nuts? Um, anyway, but see, inside of us, there is the conscious thinking, reasoning, free will. So how does evolution account for that? And the answer is it doesn't. Our ability to think and to reason and to appraise beauty and to grasp abstract principles is present because God made us this way. These things point to a creator. But there's something else that's inside of us that points toward a creator and a designer. And I think that that is our moral sense of right and wrong our moral sense of right and wrong, our sense of, of morality. That, again, that's called the moral argument for God. Um, you know, many people want to say, and they want us to believe that there is no right and wrong today. That what's right for you may not be right for me, or uh, things like that. Uh, we talked about that one of our first sermons in this, in this series. Uh, you know, people who believe that there is no universal code of morality by which we should live. And, and yet while they say this, and they desperately want others to believe this, in reality, that's not how they live. It's not how we live or talk or act. G.K. Chesterton once said, if I don't believe in God, I should still want my doctor, lawyer, and banker to do so. How many agree with that? <laughs> now, why? So, so you you, you kind of got it. I mean, what he's trying to say there. He, you know, we may not want to treat people a certain way, even though we know that we should, even though we know we should. But we we also think that we all because we know how we always want to be treated, right? That's how we we want to be treated a certain way. Um. We may not want to treat other people fairly. We may not want to treat them honestly and, and respectfully, but without question, we expect other people to treat us that way. And so, for example, you know, we may something, say something like this, that, that lying is not wrong, but we certainly don't want to be lied to. Uh, we might say that cheating is not wrong. And there's many ways that we can cheat. 
you know, whether it's our taxes or, you know, whatever it is, or we, stealing or whatever, we, we may say that that's not wrong, but certainly we wouldn't want anyone to cheat us. Uh, not long ago, the television show Survivor was pretty popular. I don't know. Is it popular still? It's still popular? Okay, I, I, I just, I don't know. I, I, it isn't, um, um, I don't know much about it. I, I haven't watched it. Do you watch it, Ruth? Oh, no, okay. They have friends that do. So it's popular? It's not reruns or anything like that? No, it's still going strong. Still going strong. All right. But anyway, one thing I do know about it and the things that I've read about it is that part of the game was to lie, to cheat, and to, and to backstab your way up to become the sole survivor. That's the whole point of that game, of that, of that strategy. No, no one had any problems with it when they're lying and cheating and backstabbing, you know, when they're the ones doing it, because that was part of the game. It was a pretty good strategy, actually, you know, teaching, you how to, teaching us how to be great adults, isn't it? It's a good, healthy, wholesome show. They didn't have any problem with that until others did it to them. And the point of it is, not of the survivor, but the point I'm trying to make is, Moral standards do exist. In all of our minds, there is some sense, there is some unwritten code or standard of what is right and what is wrong. And if we are treated in a certain way, we start, you know, if somebody is, 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 treats you in a bad way, somehow what you do is you start going, well, you start putting up that, uh, that moral code, that, that, that code of ethics, uh, or that code of conduct that, that we believe that everyone should somehow know and understand and accept. And yet, what's more, if we are accused, this is kind of human, human nature. We talked about a little bit in our, in our um, communion meditation this morning, talking about you know, how we justify different things and, and, and so on. If we're accused of breaking some moral, or unwritten moral code that we set for others, Sometimes we do that. We have standards that are higher than other people. If somebody breaks the one that we set for others, then we, if, we, if we find ourselves guilty of breaking the one that we set for others, then and we're called out on it, immediately we begin to make excuses and justifications for ourselves. I mean, even if no one calls it on us, there's this feeling sometimes, you ever feel guilty about something you did? Nobody else really knows you did something wrong, but you do? Yes, yes or no? Okay, that, is that not innate in us? I mean, we feel that way. And, and there's that feeling of guilt inside for the way that we treated someone if, they, if we've done something to them and because you know, we have certain standards or whatever. We lied to them or we harmed them or whatever it is. And, and the question isn't whether, whether the excuses that we come up with or the justifications that we come up with are good or, or are bad. But rather, the question really becomes, why are we making them at all? Why are we making excuses? I mean, it's not a question of whether guilt is real or, or perceived. The question really is, why do we feel guilt at all? Our excuses, our rationalizations, and, and guilt are just one more indicator that inside each and every one of us is this moral standard that we feel obligated to keep and we feel obligated to defend and, and, and we feel obligated to explain or we just somehow feel obligated to rationalize when we come up short. 
And the question is really, where does that come from? When, when, when we say that we were treated unfairly, then where does that idea of fairness come from? When we are robbed and we say that that was wrong, where do we get that concept of right and wrong? And when we say an evil, an action is evil, where does that idea of good and evil really come from? And that is the great question of the moral argument. You know, one of the objections to Christianity is this. If a good God made the world, then why has it gone so wrong? You hear that question, don't you? You hear what they're asking. How can there be a God, let alone a good God, if everything I see around me in the world seems cruel and unjust? I read some blog this week. I, I, sometimes you get into this. You're, you're, um, this, this was kind of... Kind of uh, in, I don't know how to describe it. It's just, but this person who I, I, I'm taking it by the way that they were talking that they they were a non-Christian and became a Christian, and and the site that I was on was really not, and I don't remember what site it was to be honest with you, but it wasn't really a, necessarily a Christian. It wasn't a defense of Christianity site, but this one person said this. For many years, I simply refused to listen to the Christian answers to this question. Remember what the question is? How can there be a God, let alone a good God, if everything I see around me in the world seems cruel and unjust? This person said, I, I read some, uh, or this person said that, um, for many years, I simply refused to listen to the Christian answers to this question because I kept on feeling that whatever you say and however clever your arguments are, isn't it much simpler and easier to say that the world was not made by an intelligent power? In other words, aren't all your arguments simply a complicated attempt to avoid the obvious, mainly that there, there is no God? So then she goes on to say, but, but then that threw me back into another difficulty. She said, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A person doesn't call a line crooked unless they have some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? If the whole show, life, universe was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak, why did I, who was supposed to be a part of the show, find myself in such a violent reaction to it? A person feels wet when they, when they fall into the water because people are not water animals. A fish does not feel wet. And then she goes on to say, of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing more than a private idea of my own, but if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on my saying that the world was really unjust and not simply that it did not happen to please my fancies. Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of injustice, my idea of justice was full of sense. It made sense, in other words. See, atheism, as it turns out, is just way too simple. 
Uh, I, I mean, if the universe has no meaning, then we never should have discovered that it had no meaning. Right? I mean, to put it another way, if there wasn't any light in the universe and, and therefore n no creatures with eyes, we would never know it was dark. Dark would just be a word without meaning. If this moral law, sense, this sense of right and wrong, didn't come from God, then we are forced to believe that it comes from non-moral matter, which is like saying morality just sprang into existence without cause or foundation. And, and with no ultimate cause or foundation, there really is no moral law, no way to judge between right and wrong or between good and evil. See, morality makes sense, or it makes no sense without God. Morality doesn't make sense without God. If there's an internal sense of, of moral law, then, then we must be, at the very least, we must entertain the thought that there is a moral lawgiver. And so what would it take for a moral law or for a moral standard to be meaningful? You ever thought about that? The answer to that question is rather simple. The answer is justice. Right? What would make a moral law or a moral standard meaningful? Justice. We live in a, in a, in a society today that is, is, uh, is supposed to be just, right? The American uh, jurisprudence, the, the whole legal system that we have, uh, Within our, we, we is, is based upon being just, I, I, I think. At least it's, it's, it seems to me that that's the way it is. Uh, but that's, that's what's supposed to make that moral standing, standard meaningful. If crime pays, in other words, if immorality has no consequences, then why should I even try to be good? Um, why should I feel guilty? Or a sense of guilt? Why... Why, why should I even try to justify myself? How, why should I be concerned about being selfless and respectful and, and sacrificial, sacrificial? Because, see, the moral standards, in order for them to be meaningful, then right behavior must be rewarded and wrong behavior must be punished. Now, I'd be the first to tell you, I, I, I don't think that I have to tell you this. Actually, I'm not, probably not the first to tell you. Um, we, as, as, as much as our society, as much as, as the United States is built upon this idea of, of justice for all kind of thing, um, we know that, in fact, innocent people oftentimes do suffer at the hands of the wicked people. It happens even in America. We do know that there are great travesties of justice today. Wickedness can rejoice and, and exist only in a place, however, where justice is not perfectly carried out. And frankly, sometimes justice is not perfectly carried out even in America. But see, what I think what that means is that, that justice must be carried out, that it can't be perfectly carried out within this life. It must be carried out beyond this life. For, for, for that to occur, there must be a morally perfect judge with, with, with perfect knowledge or, or he could not be trusted to uphold justice or rule rightly or justly or fair. And for that justice to be carried out, that judge must have perfect power 
he must be perfectly able to enforce the judgments that are passed and ensure that justice, justice takes place. The existence of moral law, of, of a moral law, demands a lawmaker. For that moral law to be binding and meaningful, meaningful there must be a perfect, all-knowing, all-powerful judge to uphold the law. And that is part of the character and the nature of God. And this proof and this, this evidence for God, it's not out there somewhere. I believe it's right in here. It is to this great creator and this designer and moral lawgiver that we will all give an account someday. But look at what Paul says. Paul said it this way. This comes from Romans chapter 2, verses 12 and following. Paul says, All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Righteous. He says, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences are bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. Isn't that amazing? We have built within us a moral compass. It's evident. It's obvious all around us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for, for these things, for hearing that, for just seeing the kind of God that you are, that you've put your, your law upon our hearts to be able to, to recognize what's good and, and, and to steer away from that which is evil. And we just we, we, uh, we, we bow before you and just honor you for, for giving us that that ability to sense uh, those things that, that are, that are um, detrimental or hurt, hurt, harmful or hurtful to, to others if they're carried out, and, but also to recognize those things that actually bring, bring uh, peace and, and bring encouragement and strength to, to those around us, that we can live together in peace. And God, I just pray that that uh, we would, as, as Christian people, as we w go outside of these walls, as we, we go back to our everyday lives, that God, in the midst of all that, that we would live in such a way that you, uh, people would see the, the kind of justice that, that, uh, and, and um, grace that, that you offer to us. Um, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.